Good morning, Mission View. We're really glad to have you here with us today. It's Celebration Sunday. And it was so great to see those babies dedicated a few minutes ago. You know, as a parent myself, it's just encouraging to belong to a church where parenting is taken so seriously and to be able to raise your children in the sight of the Lord and in a godly household and to have people surrounding you to encourage you to, to raise your, your child in the faith is, is just a tremendous encouragement. So it's, it's exciting to be able to be a part of that. And we're also going to see in, in a few moments after I preach this morning, just some, some new life, some baptism, some people that have been changed by God. So it's an exciting time. It's an exciting day to be here at Mission View, and we're so excited that you could be here with us. Well, my name is Evan Miller. I'm one of the deacons here at Mission View. And um, bringing the message today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 16. Verses 13 to 28, if you'll turn there, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28, that's where we are today. And I really see today as a time for us to huddle in this morning as a church body. My hope for you today is for you to be encouraged and to be challenged by God's word. See, at Mission View Church, we see ourselves in the context of the larger church. We are just one body of believers that makes up the larger worldwide body of believers all throughout the world. And I give a lot of props to Pastor Steve and the leadership team and the elders. They are very sensitive and, and, and remain purposeful in their discernment to make sure that our structure as a church is one that models the one that's in the New Testament so that we match God's desires to be a true local church body. So in this passage today, Matthew 16, 13 through 28, we see Jesus having five different conversations. Each of these conversations are going to reveal different elements of Jesus. These five conversations will reveal his identity and his mission. We are going to see who Jesus is, what his mission is, and how we can be a part of his mission as the church. I'm going to go ahead and read that passage now, Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So up until this point, for Jesus and the disciples, it has kind of been like all party and fun for the disciples. This is two years since they joined Jesus' Jesus's journey, following Jesus, walking where Jesus walked, 
teaching with Jesus, reteaching, and explaining parables, and demonstrating, and meeting people in private places, meeting people in public places, gatherings of thousands of people, and then small gatherings as well. Meeting, meeting in all different capacities, doing the impossible. They have watched Jesus just do some pretty wild things, raising people from the dead and performing all kinds of miracles. And so Jesus, leading up until this point, has gained a polarized following. There was one group, the religious teachers of the day, that hated Jesus' teaching, and they would constantly confront Jesus and the disciples and at this point in chapter 16 in the book of Matthew, the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders, they have become the most tense that they've ever come. They've become almost, they've become a very heavy threat because they see Jesus as a threat to their lifeless religious system and they want to kill Jesus. Now aside from the angry religious people, there are another group of fanatics there were a group of people that had a growing aspiration that were separate from these religious fanatics that, that, that wanted to make Jesus their king. They saw Jesus as a political leader. And Pastor Steve talked about this group of people last week. This group of people were, were felt oppressed by Rome and the Roman leaders. And so they wanted Jesus to be their leader at whatever cost necessary. Jesus had no interest in either group. So he instead went to Gentile territory to avoid both of these fanatical and misguided groups. And that's where today's passage is set at, Caesarea Philippi. The location really doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, but back then, this location was a perfect location to kind of get away from it all and get away from those groups. And we will see Jesus have five conversations. The first conversation, Jesus asks a simple question. This is found in verse 13. The first conversation that Jesus has is between him and his disciples. And this is a test for the disciples. The question he asks his disciples is, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Up until this point, there had been a lot of speculation from people. Some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And this is the case for Herod. Remember, Herod was the one that had John the Baptist killed at a dinner party, and so he starts hearing the success of Jesus and Jesus is gaining popularity and right away Herod thinks, whoa, holy cow, this, this, the things that he is saying, the things that Jesus is doing, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Other people saw Jesus as being Elijah or another prophet that came back from the dead, like Jeremiah. So people had mixed views of Jesus. And the same thing would happen moving forward throughout all of history. Consider this quote from the, the, the um, Napoleon Bonaparte. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded our empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. 
Consider the historian and English author H.G. Wells. He says this speaking of Jesus, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is the most dominant figure in all of history. See, everybody has an opinion about Jesus, but the answer that matters most is the true answer. And Jesus pushes the disciples further in verse 15, saying, yes, but who do you say that I am? Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He pushes them further. He demands an answer. See, how you answer this question will determine how your life is lived. Some people view Jesus as just being a good teacher. They believe that he's a wise philosopher and a community organizer of sorts. He brings people together, teaching them life lessons like a glorified Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Phil. And if this is your view of Jesus, you will take the things that you think are good about Jesus and you will scrap the rest. Some people view Jesus as a spiritual guru and make him look like a soft-spoken, mild-mannered, sissified hippie. And if this is your view of Jesus, if you believe he's a spiritual guru, you will take the things he says about love and peace and you will ignore what he teaches about hell and the kingdom of God and judgment. But today, if you view Jesus as the reigning king, the son of God, the great I am, the coming Messiah, the way you raise your family, the way you talk to your friends, the way you conduct yourself in the marketplace is going to be different when it's compared to the rest of the world because you will look more like Jesus and less like everybody else. So who do you say Jesus is? Because the same way that we see Jesus pressing the disciples for an answer, he also stands and presses us for an answer. There's no wiggle room on this question. Your eternal destiny will be determined by how you answer this question. In the second conversation today, we see Peter totally nail the answer to this question. Peter has the right answer. Conversation number two, verses 16 to 19. It's Jesus and Peter talking, and Simon Peter answers saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter gets the answer right. He nails it. And Jesus is saying here that it is impossible for people to believe on their own that Jesus is God. Jesus is saying that God must reveal that to us. God must open our eyes and show us that truth. And at this point, even the disciples were not fully convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And I think sometimes we read that and we see the struggles the disciples have, their unbelief, and we say, how could they possibly not get this? All the miracles they've seen, all the times they've seen Jesus raise people from the dead, all of the miracles they perform, that, that was performed, all of the healings, and the way that Jesus quieted the storm and the sea, and the, and the disciples were a part of that, and he, Jesus quiets it with just a few words. How could they not see that? One commentator says it like this. See, the miracles alone and the teachings of Jesus alone are not enough to convince the 12 disciples, just as they were not sufficient enough to convince the thousands of other people who heard the same truth and witnessed the same miracles. 
but failed to accept and follow the one who taught and performed them. So Jesus is affirming here that if we come to the point where we trust in him for who he is, we came there not because of anything that was inside of us, but because God opened our eyes and revealed the truth to us. In this passage, Jesus continues by giving, in verse 18, a secure promise to Peter. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Here Jesus is establishing the church. And the church is not built upon Peter, but instead the foundation of the church is built upon the word of God which was given to the apostles. And Jesus is in the cornerstone of that foundation. Jesus says that he will build the church. And with that statement alone, we can be certain that the church is not dependent upon human efforts. Sure, men can build impressive physical skyscrapers and buildings, but human hands cannot build the church because it is not physical. The church is an eternal and spiritual institution. While all organizations and businesses will be built up and one day fade and pass away, the church will live forever because Jesus is the designer, because Jesus is the builder, because Jesus is the sustainer, because Jesus is the protector, and because Jesus is the owner. And notice this, that's why he speaks possessively in this section. Notice Jesus doesn't call it the church he calls it my church. Jesus says that he is the one to build it and bless it. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so let that marinate this morning. Let that sink in. Dwell on that. The church is the only God-ordained institution in existence. No other organization or business or nonprofit can stake this claim. The church is not a cause. The church is not a club. And the church is not a charity. The church is God's chosen vehicle to deliver God's word and to preach the gospel and to establish his kingdom. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of Ephesians, saying, God is uniting all things, things in heaven and things on earth under one head, namely Jesus. And the church is the headquarters of God's project to restore all things. And the church is the place where everything is being drawn together under Christ. The book of Ephesians also calls the church the repository of the Father's wisdom. The book of Ephesians also says the church is where God receives all glory and it is a beacon of divine light, a sneak preview into heavenly glory. The connection of the church is a constant reminder of our imperfection and our need for him. Every time we gather in our homes or every time we assemble here, it is a constant confession that we are messed up. We don't have it all together, but we are being re restored by someone who does. So do you want to see where God is working? Then look to the church. Do you want to see where people are being drawn together and restored? Then look to the church. Do you want to see where people are filled with wisdom and the fullness of God? Then look to the church. 
When outsiders see a glimpse of the church, we hope that they are able to look at the church as a whole and see what is absent from our culture. In a world of racial division, when outsiders look in, may they see a love for all people because Jesus breaks the chain of race and makes us brothers and sisters regardless of our backgrounds. May outsiders see economic barriers broken down when they look into the church. In society, we are often divided by careers in the marketplace, but the church doesn't see economic status. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a barista or a banker. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO or a college student or a construction worker, whether you're into real estate or whether you're retired. The gospel breaks these barriers of division and everyone is a member of a single household and we lock arms and encourage one another by using our gifts and talents to minister to one another, to build up the body. So when an outsider looks into the church, may they gaze with curiosity and wonder and may they see God's people united and bonded together in a relationship that will pass into eternity. There is no other place like this. And Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This is an explosive statement. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And you could read this to mean that if tomorrow Satan and his army of demons would devise a plan to destroy the church and give it everything they had to try to take us down, it would never happen they would walk away disappointed. And so often I think sometimes we think about the church just being in a nature of retreat, being on the defense, but it's important to remember that Jesus is on the offense and the church is moving. Jesus is actively building the church. And this is important because it gives us boldness to spread the word of God because the kingdom will not be stopped by any force, whether it is ISIS or whether it is the government, legislation or whatever. Nothing will stop the church and the momentum that Jesus has behind it. So may this give us hope and may this resonate in your hearts this morning. And then Jesus talks about the authority of the church in this passage, saying, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever shall, you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so remember here, Jesus is still having a conversation with Peter. And remember Peter's role. He's the spokesperson of the 12 disciples. And so here Jesus is giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven and authority to the disciples. Keys signify authority. Whether it's the key to your car, a key to your house, a key to your place of business. And having a key doesn't necessarily mean that you own the item that you possess the key to. Because you, know, you may lease a car or you may rent a home that's owned by somebody else. But the same is true for the church. Jesus gives us keys to the kingdom of heaven, to the disciples, and the disciples are given the authority to bind and to loose. And don't let these terms confuse you this morning. Jesus is basically saying and allowing for the disciples to speak against the things on earth that the kingdom of heaven doesn't allow. And then on the flip side, the disciples are able to give the green light and speak approval and positively 
on what, what things are good and pure in a situation. And this authority is given to all believers. So if you have a friend, for instance, that, that comes to Jesus and they've confessed their sins and they begin to follow Jesus, you can confidently tell them that they are a part of the kingdom of God. That's the kind of authority that we can have as the church. On the flip side, if you know someone who claims to follow Jesus but their life suggests something otherwise and they're living in sin, you have the authority to show them what God's word says about their lifestyle and that they may be in danger. Be careful to note that this authority is not found in the person, but the authority is found in the word of God. It's God's word that is doing the judging. We aren't the ones determining what's right or wrong. God has already done that through his word. But since God has determined right and wrong, and it's written in his word, and because his spirit lives within us, we can speak on behalf of what the Bible says to all people. And so Jesus continues this conversation with the disciples this morning in verse 20 to 21. This is conversation number three. And he drops a total bomb on them. He says something that's going to make their jaw just drop. And put yourself in their shoes. The disciples don't quite have it all together yet. They don't have the right identity worked out for Jesus. They look at Jesus almost like he's a Chuck Norris-style leader, and they think he came to take power and to show his opponent's boss, and I, and, I, and I think, you know, he can't, at this point, he's not stumped by the religious leaders. He's cured the sick. He's raised the dead and done so many things, but what, and things are going great, and then so what he says next just comes as a total surprise to the 12 disciples, and it just takes their breath away. So verse 21, here it comes. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then raised on the third day. Everything and all of time has led up to Jesus revealing this climax to his disciples do you realize that before Jesus came to earth, he sat on a throne in heaven as a king? And as the king of the universe, the owner of all things, he chose to step down out of heaven and empty himself of personal riches. And we love to hear about stories where people go from rags to riches, but here Jesus went from riches to rags voluntarily. And think about when Jesus stepped down out of heaven, he went from being on the perfectly polished throne, seated next to God the Father, to being born in a cold stable that reeked of urine. So everything that's building up is leading to this point. Jesus is sharing his identity with the disciples and his mission. And at this point, we are reading here that God's son is going to be beaten and bruised and crushed on a wooden cross. It seems scandalous that the precious, spotless Son of God should take every impure thought and perversion and that he would be willing and able to die in our place. But that's God's plan. Peter didn't see it that way, and that's what takes us to conversation number four. Peter couldn't handle it. Conversation number four, verses 22 and 23 Peter loses his mind and says, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. And Jesus says, turns to Peter and says, look, Peter, you're acting like Satan right now. I mean, talk about not mincing words. You don't have to be a superstar theologian to figure out that this is not a good thing to be called Satan. 
Jesus is telling his disciples his purpose to go to the cross and to rise again victoriously. And Peter tells Jesus, no, no, you can't. You can't do this. Jesus calls Peter Satan because Satan would not want Jesus to go to the cross so the church could benefit and be established and grow. And I think we, like, we can be like Peter sometimes too when we have made up our mind the way that we think the church globally or the church locally should be or should be run. But just as Jesus reminds Peter, we need to be reminded too that Jesus is in charge of where his church will move and how it grows. And we also need to be reminded that Jesus is the one that's doing the building and not us. And if we learn this lesson from Peter and we get out of the way, the building will go a lot faster if we let Jesus do his job. Our final conversation this morning, conversation five, where we're following the cross-focused Savior. In verse 24, we see the fifth and final conversation. Jesus is talking to his disciples as a whole, and he tells them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So not only will their friend and leader, Jesus, be moving towards death, but anyone who follows after Jesus must be willing and ready to die as well because in God's economy, in God's economy, the way to life is through death. In the Christian life, Dying is not the end, but it's the beginning of life. And this is the great paradox. The more that you deny yourself to follow Jesus, the more you die to yourself, the more alive you feel because you marvel in the humility of Jesus. And the more you familiarize yourself and remind yourself with the death of Jesus, the more freedom you experience because you are letting go of yourself. The first component to being a disciple is denying yourself. And that is exactly what the disciples did when they were first approached by Jesus. They denied themselves. They gave up everything they found comfort in, everything they found um, life in. They left their families, their homes, their occupations to follow after Jesus. So if we want to follow after Jesus, we disown ourselves. And the next mark of the true disciple is taking up your cross. To take up your cross means that you are willing to pay any price for the sake of following Jesus. No matter what comes your way, you will embrace it for the sake of knowing Jesus. And you stand willing to be shamed and to be rejected by friends and to be judged by your family, to be harassed for your faith and even to be persecuted and murdered for your faith in Jesus because you see your relationship with Jesus as being better and sweeter and more precious than anything the world could offer. That's why it uses take up your cross in this verse. See, the disciples would understand it back then. Anybody that would take up their cross, if you see somebody walking with a cross, that's a death march, and they're marching to their death. In our, our day and age, it would be like saying taking up your electric chair or taking up your lethal injection. If you follow after Jesus, you must know that it's not going to be an easy life or a more comfortable life. No, make no mistake. Jesus didn't die so that we could have our best life now. 
He died so that you could have a way to make peace with God. The third requirement of a true disciple is obedience. See, it's not enough to die to yourself and it's not enough to leave behind your sin, but you must move forward to follow Jesus. And this means you read your Bible and you obey what it says and you trust in the promises of the Bible and you lean into and you rely on the power of God. We end our passage this morning. Jesus, in verse 26, says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying that following him will cost you everything. Pastor Steve Lawson says this, saving faith is this, coming to the end of yourself and realizing that you must transfer all that you are to all that you, to all, coming to the end of yourself and realizing you must transfer all that you have and all that you are to all that God is. And this is how to become a disciple in God's kingdom. You deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There's no other option. So this morning, will you overcome yourself and give your life to Jesus? Will you give up all that you are to follow him? The Bible says that few will do this, but most people will not. For the gate is narrow and the way is is hard that leads to life, but there are few that find it. And this is the reason why we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross. We are in danger of losing our soul and finding joy in things that are other than Jesus. We are in danger of filling our lives with things instead of Christ. We are in danger of, looking, of taking too much pleasure in things and choosing things over Jesus. We naturally have an appetite to pursue and fill our lives with everything in the world but Christ because our hearts are so naturally self-focused and self-centered. But the fact remains this. This is the only life you will ever get to live. And this is the only life that you will ever get to experience. And following that life, you'll only get one eternity. And you are made with a soul that will never die. And it says here that Jesus will gather and judge each of us as to whether we lived for ourselves or if we lived for Jesus. And so, as we, as we sit here today and as we study this, may we consider the joys of eternity that Jesus offers to us. Speaking about eternity, the Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for us for those who love him. So may you look for joy where it truly is, instead of trying to find joy in things where it cannot be found. This way, our soul may sing like the psalmist in Psalm 63. Your love is better than life and my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. So the same way that Jesus spoke to his disciples this morning, he speaks to us today. He doesn't promise you a comfortable life or an easy life, but he promises that if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after him, you will lose your life and find freedom in his name and we get to be redeemed members of a church and see lives changed 
for his glory just like we're about to see in a few moments. So today, may you find hope and comfort in the plan that God has for his son Jesus in the church. And may you be found in Jesus and no one else. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can trust in you and what your word says. As we prepare to see uh, baptisms this morning, as we prepare to see these changed lives, let us celebrate with these, these folks that are coming forward. Let us see us um, ourselves in, in you and what you're doing and what's being done in these, these people as well. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that we get to be a part of your church. We thank you for the opportunity. Help us not to take that lightly and help us, help us stay out of the way so that you may build just as you would have the church be built. Let us serve at your disposal. Let us, let us follow you and all that you call us to do so we may be used for you. And in Jesus' name, amen.